Welcome to episode number 51 of the Better With Brock podcast. We have officially passed 50, the episode that we did with Dr. Mike, and we are on the road to three digits. The road to 100 begins, and the first guest is Jordan Sullivan, aka the Fight Dietitian. He is the co-founder and head dietitian of the Fight Dietitian, and he's also the owner of TrainAid, or the co-owner of TrainAid, which is one of the supplements or hydration drinks that I take whilst doing jujitsu. So we talk about that, how he formulated that, and why the need or demand of that product revealed itself to him. We talk about how weight isn't just fat loss and fat gain. There are many different factors to weight gain and weight loss and how to manipulate that, especially when you're getting ready for competition because he has a lot of top tier combat athletes under his roster that he prepares and gets ready for their weight cuts into really big fights. He has Alexander Volkanovsky on his roster, he has Israel Adesanya and many other UFC athletes. And we also break down how Alexander Volkanovsky got ready for his most recent fight where he dropped a massive amount of kilos leading up to his short notice fight. But we highlight that it wasn't all fat, there were many other factors. And lastly, we quickly touch on how to prepare for a combat competition or local jujitsu competition that you're getting ready for. It doesn't have to be the UFC, but there are correct steps that you need to take in order to optimize yourself for a great performance. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Jordan, how did you get into the work that you do today? You're working with UFC fighters. I see you've been speaking in gyms. You're also running train aid, which I'm a big fan of. That's how I, so I heard of you through James Smith and then I started, well, he shared that he used train aid and I started doing jujitsu. I was drinking, pretty much just drinking water. And then when I tried that, I felt much better, pretty much instantly. Um, and if, if you're listening to this and you don't know what TrainAid is, it's uh, Jordan's hydration product that he'll talk on a little bit more. Uh, but yeah, mate, thanks for jumping on the podcast. It's, it's awesome to have you on. Um, and yeah, how did you, let's start off with this. How did you get into, into what you do today? Yeah, thanks for having me on, Brock. Um, I'll give you the elevator pitch so I won't bore you with the, the long <laughs> form of it. Essentially, I was at university. I um, was studying exercise nutrition science. I wanted to get into med school, but I never ended up getting in. And so I went back to uni and did my master's of dietetics. And um, like most students at university had no idea what I wanted to do. But all I was doing at the time was basically training and um, just being active. And when I finished, I ended up running away from all responsibilities and um, went over to Canada And because my brother was living there. And when I was over in Canada, I guess um, I got out of this mindset that I think I was in at university where it was like, okay, you got to do everything buy the book and follow everything, you know, cross all the T's, dot all the I's. And I kind of had this freedom. And when I had that freedom, I was training at gyms over there. And I guess just by, you know, you know, it's like training at a MMA gym or jujitsu gym. Everyone's going to compete. Everyone's going to cut weight at some stage. And all of a sudden I was the guy with the nutrition degree. So guys were coming up to me and asking me. And I think it was just organically over time because I was in this new environment and I was like, ah, oh, you know, I don't really know too much about weight cutting where over here, I wouldn't talk about it too much because it wasn't my area of expertise or whatever. When I was over there, I was kind of like, whatever, like let, let's give it a go. And I guess organically just by competing myself and then talking to guys at the gym, I just kind of jumped straight into it and thought, okay, wow, this is like a, a, a thing that people are definitely doing. 
And it's something that no one really knows about. I was looking for information. There were guys like Reed Real and Clint Wattenberg who, and Dr. Carl Lang and Evans who have been mentors for me for years. But, you know, back then that there wasn't a whole breadth of knowledge out there like there is today. So I guess I just dived in like that. And that just snowballed. You know what it's like. You start something small and then he says something to him and he says something to her. And then all these people kind of come. And I guess looking back on it, yeah, down in Toronto and that gym was kind of like the infancy of TFD. And yeah, over time, just kind of grew the knowledge, grew the team, grew the client list. And now it's a bit of a bit of a thing today. And what did you learn early on from starting with weight cutting? Because as you said, there there's not a... Well, I'm not aware of a, a, a textbook that you could just open up and say, you know, this is step one, this is step two. And I know that you've, um, you know, you've released a product that actually educates on it. But when you started, was there one, a textbook of weight cutting? And what did you figure out along the way? No, there's definitely not a textbook. Um, that's why we spent three years writing one because uh, <laughs> I don't want people having to go through what I went through. No, it was kind of dribs and drabs of info from, you were kind of looking at wrestling and then trying to put it together. MMA was big, but it wasn't like Conor McGregor big yet. That hadn't happened. So it hadn't really got to the to the UFC that we know today and everyone can relate to. So you're kind mm. of getting dribs and drabs. It was a combination of trying to look for, for credible people such as, you know, Reed, Clint, Carl, those type of guys, there wasn't a lot from them out. I think Clint had a book at the time specifically for wrestling, but then you're kind of looking at the other end of it and going, well, who's actually doing it? And there were guys like Mike Dolce, uh, George Lockhart, all these guys that were working. But again, there wasn't really this balance in between where you had guys doing it practically with people hands-on, but then also putting really high level science and really good nutrition knowledge into practice. So, um, yeah, it was a bit hard. You're kind of just grabbing dribs and drabs from everything. I think the biggest learning that I went in, and you could definitely relate to this, Brock, is just doing it yourself, right? I think you probably don't learn the best things by doing it yourself, but you definitely learn the bad things. And I did a lot of bad things. You know, I did keto and cut 25 pounds just doing keto and then was super surprised when I got absolutely destroyed in this competition and got subbed in all five matches and had no energy. And then, you know, I went into a bath and cranked it way too hot and passed out in the bath and had my now fiance come home freaking out being like, what are you doing? Like in satin saunas and dry reaching because I was so excessively overheated and all these stupid things that at the time I, I didn't particularly know any better, which I feel like a lot of people are like that. You know, you, you have a competition, you want to cut weight and you're like, oh God, I'll just do what everyone does. But there wasn't that positive culture and positive information out there like there is today. So I guess dribs and drabs of info where I could get it. And then a lot of learning on the job, which kind of influenced me and made me think, holy crap, like this is bad. Like we got to make this way better. Yeah. I sit at 90 kg and I did a competition last year where there was an 88 kg or a 93 kg. And there was, it was only a gi competition. So we're talking about jujitsu here and the gi, I'm not sure how much it weighed around one or maybe, I don't know, half a kilo to one kilo. So I would have to get to 87, which was too much for me at that time. I was probably more like 92. So I didn't want to cut four or five kilos for my first competition and just get roasted. So <laughs> I, I went up to 93. So I was cruising. I thought, okay, I don't have to drop anything, but usually because I have such a high calorie allowance per day, I have to get in about 3,500 just to maintain my weight. So I usually start the day with a smoothie that's jam-packed with a ton of calories. It's usually around 1,500 calories just so I get a head start on the day. And I thought that's probably not the best idea to drink 1.5 liters of liquid before a jiu-jitsu fight, you know, 
or way more, but also I feel slightly sluggish after it. So I thought it would be okay. It would be relatively easy. So I skipped that, but then I didn't know what to eat. And then I had to leave for the competition. And then I ended up eating a sandwich out of the cafe. I was super nervous. So I didn't sleep very well. I didn't expect myself to be so nervous, but I was extremely nervous. And I usually have coffee two a day, two or three a day. And I had one when I woke up and then I had one when I got there as well, just because, because I thought, you know, I know the research, caffeine has performance benefits, but I was so nervous. I couldn't eat. My heart rate was pretty jacked up, even just kind of walking around, just being at the competition, looking around at the fights already happening, sussing out who my opponent is. Wow, he's pretty tall. He's pretty big. And man, I felt pretty shit, to be honest, in my first fight. I still managed to walk away uh, victoriously, but I knew that I didn't prep myself well. What advice would you give for someone not jumping into the UFC, obviously, like your clients, but just doing a local comp, just just preparing for it. It doesn't necessarily need to be weight cutting. We can talk about that after, but just getting it right, feeling good on the day when you're I mean, competing. I think you touched on so many pain points there that if anyone <laughs> or if you have any listeners that do jujitsu, probably 99.9% .9 of them just went, yeah, that's happened to me as well. And I think it's a really common thing, right? Especially because in weight category sports, particularly things like jujitsu, which are same day weigh-ins, we call it. So you've got to go up there and for certain competitions, you literally step on the scale, the guy ticks you off, and then you go into what we call a bullpen, which is where you go and compete and you can't come out of that. So it's like you do that and then within two minutes, you can be fist bumping and going. It creates this really interesting dynamic then of, okay, not only do I not know what I should be eating, to perform, I've got to do this thing where I manage my weight and it, it really trips a lot of people up. And I tell all new guys who are new at this sport, I say, forget the second part, forget the managing your weight part, because you need to remember this is a technical sport. And like you just said, you can probably not have that good of a diet. You can probably get away with not hydrating too well. If you're technically superior than your opponent in a sport like this, you'll probably do better. If you're stronger than them, you'll probably do better. If you've trained harder for longer, you'll probably do better. And this whole thing about weight, that, you know, weight cutting that we talk about so much and you hear a lot of new guys at jiu-jitsu, I want to cut weight, I want to cut weight. It doesn't really make that much of a difference until you get quite far along your journey where all of those things are kind of matched. The technical prowess, the strength, the time training, all those things are a bit matched. And then something like a bit of a size differential, maybe you can just escape that one arm bar that that guy had really tight. Maybe you've got a better lever. Maybe you'll pass and you'll be able to outmuscle someone and get those two points and that's all. Maybe those little things when you're at a black belt competition, maybe they'll, they'll come into play. But for the most part, focus on training. Focus on training and get there and focus on eating good foods for your performance when you're training and then recovery and then fuel up when you've got that competition going there. Combat sports are funny, bro, because they're like the opposite to every other sport you know every other sport say endurance running or even football rugby soccer whatever you load up going into those sports you fill your body with good nourishment you carve up you do your best with combat sports it's like the complete opposite you just rip and deplete everything and then people are like oh man why aren't i performing the best it's like yeah bro you just took all the fuel out and now you're like trying to rev that thing at like five thousand revs per minute and it's just got nothing in it so i say to all all the guys just focus on the Focus on your nutrition, focus on fueling, forget weight cutting. Weight cutting can come later. I think weight cutting also makes you feel 
like you're a bigger deal than you are because you're doing something serious for a competition. I think I've got that vibe from people talking about it that want to do that because it feels like it's more of, I don't know, not that you're more important than you are because that sounds a bit a bit mean, but I just it, it kind of feels like you, you really are competing and you're taking your sport a bit more seriously when you do a wake up. Yeah, it's a, that's absolutely true. And it's a good thing in the sense that, yeah, it, it requires a lot of discipline, requires a lot of, you, you know, things that are very positive to do well at sport. But I think that culture, the weight cutting culture and how we look at it is so bad and so negative in combat sports. I call it the dick measuring contest. And you see this so much like Muay Thai boxing, you go to a weigh in and it's like, these guys are just talking like who cut the most weight, who cut the most weight, like almost they're forgetting they're fighting or about to compete. It's like who could cut the most weight and they're just slinging their dicks around of like who just evaded death the best. And it's like, yeah, that's cool, bro. Like you just went to death's door and narrowly escaped, but now you're going to go into a ring or a cage or on the mat or whatever and just get beat the shit out of. And like, what was the point? Like your whole focus was just making weight. You've got to fight after that. And I think that is a real negative. We've really tried to change that a lot in the, I guess, call the culture of gyms and all gyms we work in, we really hammer that. If I'm at weigh-ins and I see guys doing that, I'll just roast them. I'll be like, man, like we know like you cutting weight isn't going to be any really more beneficial until you get to like the highest of high levels. All you're doing is just taking away for your performance. Like, that's not impressive whatsoever. Like what's impressive is the guy that's rocked up, looks healthy. He's fueled up. He makes the weight. He can still hold a good coherent conversation, goes back, <laughs> rehydrates and then goes into the ring the next time or on the cage or on the mats, whatever, and then performs 10 out of 10. You're like, well, that's impressive. You nearly killing yourself in a sauna or like dieting excessively for four weeks and coming in looking like a skeletal. Like, that's not impressive. Like, we're fighting here. Like, fight. That's impressive. When I first thought of doing a podcast in 2019, I wrote down everything that I wanted to achieve with the show. And one thing I never wrote down was to spam you with ads of products that I never really used myself. However, I did write down that I wanted to grow it as big as possible and have as many interesting people on the show as I could. To help make that happen, all I ask is that you leave a review on the podcast platform that you're listening to this episode on and share it with someone that you know it will benefit. If you want to support myself even further and more importantly your body transformation and are interested in having me as your coach to help you achieve the results that you just can't seem to achieve on your own, you can visit teambrockashby.com to see what program fits you best. Back to the show. Yeah, that's the biggest challenge, trying to fight in that depleted state. So, yeah, I can completely see that. Why it's, yeah, I don't know, people just get caught up in the in the little details. Uh, recently, you you coached uh, Volkanovski in UFC 294, and I was super surprised to see. I've heard of dramatic weight cuts. Uh, I don't follow UFC too tightly just because I don't want to introduce another hobby that kind of, <laughs> like just watching UFC, that takes up... Mate, the amount of friends that I have where their Sunday is just cleared, <laughs> like pretty much from 10 a.m. Till, till nighttime, just cleared watching the UFC is massive. So that's kind of why I just kind of watch fights here and there. Um, but he recently did, um, yeah, UFC 294. He lost 12 kg in 11 days. What was your strategy behind that? Obviously, it was a short notice fight. He didn't have long to prepare for it. But what were you thinking as soon as you were notified that you had to get him ready? Uh, the first thing I thought was, um, I really don't want to jump on a plane. I wish this was in Australia, but um, 
No, the the thing, first question I asked Volk was um, two things. I said, what's your weight? Like, what's your current weight? And what have you been doing? Because your weight will fluctuate a lot. And, and you'd know this, Brock. Like, um, maybe you go out and have a couple beers with the guys and then you go to an Asian place. Maybe it's BYO. Yeah, everyone gets like a ramen, some, you know, salty foods, things like that. Have a couple drinks. Everyone has a great time. But if you wake up the next morning and you stepped on the scale, you'd be way heavier. You'd be way heavier because you've introduced things in your body that cause a lot of fluid retention. Not only did you eat a lot of food, which has a lot of food volume. And remember, we've got to push that through our body. We have a we have a hole here that we shove it in and then there's a hole down the bottom that it comes out and there's a whole lot of stuff it's got to go in between and it takes a couple of days for it to get through. So you've got all that food sitting there at any one time. You've got a bunch of food and then you're eating all this salt, which causes a lot of water retention. You're drinking a lot of extra fluid. So you've got all that in your body. So basically I said to to Alex when he um called me, I was like, okay, well, what's your weight? And he was, yeah, 26 pounds or something off. But then the next question was, what have you been doing? And he was literally just on holiday. He had surgery and then he went away on holiday. And he's like, man, I was just relaxing, doing what all us coaches were telling him to do. Like, yeah, yeah don't train. In the off season. Yeah, you're, you're, you need to have a break. You can't be in this Super Saiyan 3 mode all the time, bro. You've got to be turned off at something. And that's what he did. Like he listened to us. He turned off, he just relaxed with his family, had a couple of drinks, went and enjoyed, you know, some good buffets. So yeah, that weight was really high, but it was artificially high, I guess. So I knew for a fact from working with Alex for years and years and years, I knew that weight wasn't his true weight. And and we saw that within two, three days, I knew that he would lose three, four of that really, really fast. Because again, he would sweat out all that extra fluid, the salt, he wouldn't be on such a high sodium salt diet. So that would cause some fluid to come out. He wouldn't be eating the volume of food. So less food would be physically sitting in his gut. You know, he, he had a lot of stores, like all his muscle glycogen. It was all topped up to the max. So I knew there was a lot to go in. So the strategy then was, okay, how much are we going to lose like initially? And then what are we looking at? What are we looking at then? Is this weight possible? And like I said, I've worked with Alex for years and we've got a lot of data with him and and I'm sure we'll get into it. Weight cutting is a funny thing because there's a period where you go through where you lose fat, but then the the few days before you see them step on the scale, we're essentially just slowly dehydrating their body before we rapidly dehydrate their body in a sauna or a hot bath or when they exercise or whatever. So we didn't get this fat loss period. We had 11 days. So it was essentially clear everything out of the system, run the numbers, and we're in shooting range where we can manipulate fluid to get down to that weight and um, it was big, like those numbers were big. And if I was to look at that with probably 99% of clients on my roster, I'd say, nah, don't do it. But Alex, I don't know if, if I've said this publicly, he's one of the biggest weight cutters in the UFC. And that's not because we prefer cutting weight or I encourage cutting lots of weight. It's just the fact that there's a lot of components that go into how much weight you can cut and how much you can dehydrate someone's body. And Alex, just happens to have a lot of these factors that are in his favor. You know, he's he's short, he's stocky, he's got an insane amount of muscle for his size. So he holds a lot of muscle glycogen, he holds a lot of liver glycogen, these things that we can manipulate. Um, he seems to lose a lot of weight if we remove fiber. Like I said, he, he seems to hold a lot of food in his gut at one time. So if we can move that out, if we're manipulating salt, he's his body seems to respond really well. If we lower that salt, it will release fluid really, really well. 
And so, and lastly, he's a really big sweater. He's a big sweater. So uh, I'm sure you, you know, guys, if you go into a sauna, you take three guys into a sauna. If you have any friends who are, who are Asians, it, it seems to, you know, they don't sweat as much. It's, it's just the thing. They don't sweat as much. And then if you have guys who are heavy, so you probably trained with that guy, Brock, who just, you roll one round with him and he's just drenched and you're like, dude, get off me. Or he's just drips on the face like, inside yeah, control. Yeah, yeah, when he's inside control. So all of these things play into how much you can cut. And Alex kind of has all of them pointing in his direction. So when I looked at these numbers, it was big, but I thought, yeah, you know what? If we do this right, we'll be able to get it. I looked at the post that you did with his diet on the day, and I just want to quickly read them out. You obviously know them or you've posted them before, um, but I'm just curious. I'd love to hear why you chose these or this type of meal plan. So meal one was a vegetarian omelet, mixed berries, snack was the frozen peanut butter cup. Meal number two was fried chicken, spicy sour cream and potato wedges. Snack was mixed berries. I think I saw a little bit of like chocolate pebbles in there. Uh, meal three, smoky barbecue chicken and cauliflower buffalo bites. And then dessert was chocolate ice cream. And the total calories were 2,200 100 carbs, which is pretty low for someone that's moving a lot for him. 190 protein, which I thought was quite high. And then 125 grams of fat. So I know it's uh, quite a lot of info to take in, but why did you do, I guess, food choices like that? And then why those calories and macros? Yeah. So a couple of things will break down. So firstly, when you're cutting weight, as I said, usually these guys have eight to 12 weeks in a fight camp, we call it, or a comp prep, whatever you want to call it, where we're losing body fat. And losing body fat is very different to what we call weight cutting. When we're losing body fat, you do that by manipulating the body's energy balance or state of energy balance. A lot of people will say, oh, you've got to be in a calorie deficit. That's true, but it's a, it, there's a bit more to that story. You've got to be in a state of negative energy balance. This essentially means all of the things in your body, you're burning more than what you're putting in. So we can all agree that's how you lose body fat. And we'll strategically do that for eight weeks, which brings these guys' weights down quite a lot during the um, fight camp or comp, whatever, comp prep, whatever you're and on for. Sorry to jump in. And, and typically, how aggressive would you go with that eight to – like? Say you have an eight-week period of where you're dropping actual body fat. Not, Does not it depend on? We, we don't go too aggressive. The guidelines our team sets is you don't want to go half percent of your body weight is a good amount. Maximum is 1.5% of your body weight each week. And the reason we do that is you got to remember, it's not about losing weight. These guys are training two, three, four times a day and they're doing it six mm. days a week, six and a half days a week, some weeks. And it's really intense on their body. So if you're taking away calories, you're taking away not only their fuel to train, but the fuel to recover as well. So if you put them in too big a state of negative energy balance, it puts them at risk of what we call low energy availability, which is a really big issue in sports. And that essentially just means your body doesn't have enough calories to do all of the essential functions that it needs. And so it starts rationing and sparing calories. And you see people, this happen to people who are not just athletes, but people who aggressively diet and you see negative effects such as their hormones will shut down. You know, females lose their period, guys' testosterone's plummet, uh, growth hormone goes down. All of these things that are negative start to happen because your body is rationing calories between the body systems. And we don't want to do that because these guys are training. So you just put them in 
enough of a calorie deficit to hit the weight that we want to do, but we don't want to be so aggressive that our body is rationing too hard. We're going to have to ration because we're in a deficit. You don't want to ration too hard. Yeah, I do that with my personal training clients as well. I like to stick to exactly pretty much in the middle of what you're recommending. I like to lose around 1%. Obviously, it depends on the timeline. It depends on people's mindset as well. Some people can handle ag aggressive, calorie uh, aggressive calorie deficits. Like I'm sure, you know, with Alex, because he's such a mentally strong person, he could handle extreme deficits where there's some people that just don't have the, I don't know what it is. It could be grit, it could be resilience, but I think even myself, I don't like aggressive calorie deficits. I just like to slowly chug along. I did a cut recently. I'm not competing for anything. I just wanted to pull my body fat down because I was getting a bit excited. And I I only lost around four, oh, sorry, three kilos in eight weeks. Super slow for someone who, who weighs, I started at 92. So that's probably... I'm not sure what that is, but it was very slow, but I enjoyed it because I didn't actually feel like I was dieting at all. I just felt like I, I don't know, maybe had one less meal or instead of putting honey and brown sugar on my oats, I stopped doing that sort of stuff. I really like a slow cut. Have you noticed that with people that you have to work with that some people respond really well with aggressive shorter timelines and some people don't? Yeah, absolutely. There's always responders and non-responders and everything. I think if you really dug down to it, if you think about what that energy balance equation is, right? Like calories in is pretty straightforward. Like you said, just the food that you put in and you can reduce that just by, like you said, taking out the brown sugar or whatever. But if you look at the calories out, it gets more complicated, right? Like you've got your, your basal metabolic rate, which is the amount of energy we need to stay alive. You've got the energy to digest the food and then the different macronutrients take different types or amounts of energy to digest that food you've got your non-exercise which is all the fiddling around and making coffee and going to the toilet that we do and our steps every single day and then you've got your activity so there's a lot of variance within that and you'll generally find people you can explain how how well people respond based on those factors in their calorie out right like generally if they've got a much higher protein diet and they're they're burning more calories by using more energy, absorbing that food, they can generally handle it a bit better. Whereas if you take someone who's got a really high fat or really high carb diet, and that's not the case, that generally helps with um, being able to handle it. If you've got guys that have active lifestyles, not just training, but they're up and they're walking, you know, they're doing things to sway that energy balance in their favor, they can generally handle it a bit better. Or I guess the big one is the activity, right? It's very different if you've got someone doing a 30 minute workout every single day, which is great, it's absolutely fine. But then if you've got someone like Alex who's training five to six hours a day, it's gonna dip them in such a big deficit and your body's gonna feel that. Not only are they gonna feel that, like I said, you've got to recover from that. And that's, that's the big thing is the recovery. When we talk about top level fighters and getting them to a fight, it's not necessarily about who trained the hardest, it's who recovered the best during their fight camp. And this calorie deficit and how aggressive you're in it is such a huge component because that energy out part of that energy balance equation is so high. So they could probably get away with eating a bit more and, and eating more calories than the average Joe does to lose weight, but they're still in a really big deficit and managing that deficit, like you said, just putting them in the lowest one possible gets them to the fight in the best shape possible. Hmm. So coming back to the the food choices and the calories and, and, and macros you put them in, 
Um, yeah, what was the thinking with it? Was it higher fiber? Was it lower fiber? Were you trying to take out sodium? Were you trying to keep sodium in? I'm not sure at what point these meals were uh, that he was having. Was it closer to the fight? Was it a bit further away? Can you can you expand a little bit on that? Yeah. So so as I was saying, yeah, we have that fat loss phase, and then we switch into what we call like our fight week or or weight cutting phase, and the weight cutting is removing fluid in different parts of the body. And you can do that by manipulating intake. And like you, like you just alluded to, there's certain macronutrients and food choices that hold on or cause fluid to be held in the body. So carbohydrates, if you eat a lot of carbohydrates and you're not doing a lot of high intensity activity, it's going to burn it. Your body will store it away because it's good energy. It's really good energy. So it'll store it as this thing called glycogen and we'll put glycogen in our muscles and we'll put glycogen in our liver, but glycogen holds water with it. So if you've got a lot of glycogen or you're topped up with your glycogen stores, you're going to have a lot of water. If you take away the carbohydrate from the diet or you do a lot of high intensity activity without that carbohydrate, your body will start burning into those stores because it wants to use it as energy. This is why you see people who use ketogenic diets or, or go on a, a high fat, low carb diet, why they get that initial weight loss so fast and they go, this is great. This is so amazing. It's because they're ripping out all these glycogen stores, which not only takes out the physical glycogen, but then all the water. And for every one gram of glycogen, there's two to three grams of water with it. So you can imagine if you've got 500 grams of glycogen in your body, that's a couple kilos you're just ripping off by simply removing the carbohydrate. You can see why people get so stoked with keto, but then hmm. it doesn't and they get last. stuck in the trap. Yeah, yeah. But then obviously it doesn't last because you've got to be in that deficit to actually lose the body fat. And then to manipulate water, we can also take out salt or sodium or lower it because again, sodium is what we call osmotically active, which just means it draws water. It, it, it holds on the water. So it makes sense. The more sodium you have in your body, the more water. Like I said, if you go to an Asian or restaurant that's very salty, lots of salty food, you'll wake up holding more water and be heavier. So we take that out, get more free loss of water. Like I said, your gut will have a lot of food in it at any one point. And the biggest contributor to that is how much fiber you have, which is a great thing. Everyday life, you eat more fiber, you slow that transit. It's more food, more time for your good gut bacteria to eat it. it. It's amazing. You should have lots of fiber in your diet, but we can manipulate that in three to four days and take out all the fiber and then clear that empty space. That's one to two kilos that you could be holding. And Alex holds about that in his gut. And then the last thing we play around with is the actual water intake. So like you said, if you drink your smoothie of 1.5 liter in the morning, you're going to put 1.5 liters back on. So, and then you're also going to put that fluid back in other parts of your body. So if you, what we can do is we can manipulate your intake where we can either put a lot of intake in and do something like we call water loading, which causes a lot more fluid to go through our kidneys. And what that does is it causes changes in our kidneys and go, our kidneys think, oh, there's lots of water here. I've got to get rid of it because I don't want to upset this balance of water in our body too much. So it pushes out a lot more water. And then what we can do is reduce that. And then hopefully we, our kidneys keep pushing out that water, but then we've reduced our total intake maybe 12 hours before we actually step on the scale and we continue pushing out that water, even though we've stopped our intake and we can get a bit more. So what you're essentially doing for those five days or so is just, dehydrating the body but you're dehydrating the body and then the last thing we'll do with alex is we'll either put him in a hot bath a warm bath or a sauna 
and then sweat and get more fluid loss. So it's a game of slowly dehydrating the body and then rapidly dehydrating the body. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that he was wrapped up in the blanket and he was seated in the sauna and then you got him lying down and then you put him in the hot bath and you said you wanted to raise his core temperature. Is that to increase the metabolic rate or is that just to keep him warm because you get colder as you have less body fat? So, I'm not so really that, sure what the that's thinking the, is. That's the very last stage of this. So we, we've done the food manipulation, which all of those things I just spoke about every day, Alex is waking up lighter because we're manipulating all of those nutrients and fluid is coming out of his body. So that's why he's losing a kilo Tuesday, a kilo on Wednesday, whatever it is, every single day. But then the day before weigh-in, say on the Thursday, say we've got four or five kilos left to go. We don't have the time to keep manipulating, you know, the, four or five kilos food. the day before. That's a lot of yeah, weight. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, so how do we get that out? And he's like, okay, well, we, we need to sweat it out. And so keep in mind that dehydration is can be very dangerous. Your body is very resilient to dehydration. Like you can you can go 30 days without food, but only a couple of days without water, but your body can get very dehydrated in that process before you drop dead. But you got to remember for these guys, this is why weight cutting is so dangerous. We're strategically and purposefully already dehydrating him for a number of days until we get to this point. So we're already deep in the desert and we're at the end part of it. And that's, that's my job to kind of keep these guys safe and manage this whole process and then bring them back properly, which we'll talk about later. So he's very dehydrated, but now we've got four kilos left and I can, and this is part of the, the strategy when he called me is I need to run these numbers to make sure, Hey, when we do this process, are you going to be safe? Yeah. You, you can dehydrate your body and you can go out in the desert for two days, but you'll drop dead at one point. It's like, you need to fight for a world championship. I don't, I don't want you to drop dead. I want you to get on this weight and then we're going to bring you back and get you back to 110% within 36 hours. And then you're going to go fight. So that last bit, that four or five kilos, he's laying down. We need to raise his core body temperature to start sweating. That's why we start sweating is our core body temperature sits around 37 degrees Celsius. If it goes up to about 38 degrees Celsius, our body goes, it's too hot. Being hot is dangerous because it will denature proteins. It'll cause bad things to happen in our body. Sweating is one of the greatest evolutionary traits that humans have. It, it's caused a lot of positive things over our evolution. What our body does then is it takes fluid from our blood, puts it on our skin, and then from there, it evaporates. It evaporates off. And that evaporation of going from that liquid into a gas up into the air, that actually causes a cooling effect. It takes heat to evaporate that fluid. So it actually takes heat from the body to cool that sweat, to, to release that sweat. And you multiply that over millions of sweat glands over the body, you've just cooled the body down. So you were hot and you're sweating and now you're gonna cool. But what we're doing in that process is we're maintaining that core body temperature just above what we need to sweat. So that process keeps happening. So that's why you see me putting him in the sauna and then putting him in the blanket and then wrapping him up because a big mistake that a lot of athletes do here is they keep heating the body and if you keep heating the body up you go to 38 degrees 39 degrees 40 degrees you can experience what's called overheating and you can experience two things firstly heat exhaustion and then really seriously something called heat stroke and if 
most people, if your audience is in Australia, if you have any tradie mates, big, big, big problem for guys working outdoors in the summer, right? Like, cause you're not drinking fluid. So you're probably dehydrated, which means you've got less fluid to put as sweat on your body to help this cooling mechanism. So you've compromised that. And then you're also exposed to either the hot sun or in the weight cutting sense, you're exposed to a hot sauna. So your core body temperature is going up and then your body is not able to cool itself properly. And like I said, when that core body temperature keeps going up, really bad things happen in our body. We denature proteins. You, you can literally drop dead and have a seizure. You can die mm. from overheating. So the dangerous thing about weight cutting Yes, dehydration plays a role, but our body is quite resilient to dehydration. Really, really, really bad things can happen if you get overheated really fast. And that's what you're seeing us manage with Alex. And it's obviously quite a delicate process because again, we're taking four or five kilos off in that last period there. So after that, how long until he jumped on scales, uh, jumped on the scales for the fight after doing all of this? Is it pretty much up until he steps on. So we'll, we'll do this process and this will, he'll weigh in at 9am Friday and this final dehydration will start late Thursday night. So we'll start, start just a little bit, say at about 10pm that night where we'll just do a training and he'll sweat a little bit with training, but then we'll wake up probably about an hour to an hour and a half before that 9am weigh in. So about 7.30 and that's when we'll continue the sweating. And like I said, there's a lot of factors that work in Alex's favor. He's a big sweater. So in that hour and a half, he can lose, you know, up to two to three kilos by sweating, which most of us normal mere mortals won't, won't be able to do. So that's, and then he's on weight, but you don't want him to be on weight for too long because like I said, we've drastically dehydrated him in the days leading up to that. And in 36 hours time, he's got to go fight for a world title. So we've got to rehydrate him, refuel him and get him back to a hundred percent as fast as we can. So what does it look like once he gets off the scales? What does the, the, the loading phase or just hydrating phase, uh, getting food into him? What's that process like? And what are you thinking? Yeah. So I guess the best way to explain this is kind of explain the reverse of what's happening with sweating, right? So. Again, I'll, I'll reiterate, he's pretty dehydrated at this stage. He's lost a lot of weight through dehydration and um, you've taken a lot of fluid from the inside and you've put it on the outside, but now we need to get fluid back in. So how do we do that? These guys, if, if this happened to you or me, Brock, we would just go to a hospital and they would put an IV in. They would just put an IV in. They wouldn't put an IV of normal water. They would put what's called a saline solution, either a Hartman solution. What that solution has in it is both water, glucose and salt. And the reason that we have that in there is because when I spoke about earlier, when you take salt out of the diet, you release a lot of fluid is because our body doesn't particularly know how much water it has in it. It only really knows how much salt it has in it or how salty the water is. And that's what our kidneys is detecting. When water goes through our kidneys, it's detecting how salty that water is. So Brock, if I, if I grab this bottle here and it's, this, this is not a good example, this is a train aid, but if it's full of water and I just smash plain water, it's going to make my, my salty water in my body less salty because I'm diluting that, right? So if that goes through my kidneys, my kidneys will pick that up and it'll go, ah, oh, there's a, there's a lot of less salty water here. I must've diluted my, my body water. 
So I'm going to pee some of that out to get it back to the, the saltiness that I like. And that's why when you drink a lot of plain water, you'll just pee it out. You, you run to the bathroom really quick. But say that I was to put, say, sodium and glucose in there, like, like we do with Trainaid and other rehydration drinks, you create a saltier solution. So when you put that in your body, if there's more salt in there, your kidneys recognize that and they go, oh, we'll hold on to that water because there's more salt in here and we want to balance it back to our preferred saltiness, if, if that makes sense. The yeah, it makes sense. The complicated thing when it comes to weight cutting or any athlete that sweats profusely, remember we're pushing fluid from our body out of our body and now we want to get it back in. So we have to put it in our mouth and then we have to get it back into our body and restore that ideal level of saltiness is that you've moved all the fluid out. So imagine you had a bottle of water that's full of salty water and you just took a lot of the fluid out without the salt, without as much salt. You're just left with a little bit of fluid and a lot of salt, which is what happens when we sweat a lot. So it's a really, really salty solution. So what we actually need to do then is just get the fluid back in and in order to restore the ideal level of saltiness. And so that's why we use and why you, when you go to a hospital, you get a very particular concentration of fluid. It's not a super, super salty drink, but it's not a drink that's completely just water. It's slightly yeah. in between because when you put that back in your body and it moves into all the areas, it's the perfect ratio to restore the ideal saltiness. And then you, a lot of people probably listening and go, man, what is this guy talking about? Why does this matter? And you go, well, it probably doesn't matter to, to, well, it does matter. It does matter to a lot of people. But if you think mm -hmm. for the extreme levels that we're dehydrating these guys, if we stuff that up and you stuff up the level of salt in your body, you go too high or too low, you could die. And you see this mm -hmm. in marathon running where guys will run in really hot weather and they sweat a lot and they lose a lot of the, the fluid and salt and they just drink plain water. You get a condition called hypo, which means low, neutremia, which means blood salt. So you get low blood salt because you're just drinking, like I said, the plain water and you're diluting the saltiness. Our body doesn't like that. It can't handle it. You often, it's happened before people have had seizures and they drop dead because they've diluted all the cells in their body and it's super dangerous. And you see on the other end with weight cutting, and you see this in say the ultra endurance world where people will be putting in two drinks that are too salty and you can go hyper, which are too much neutremia, too much salt in the blood, which goes the other way. And if you get too much salt, same thing, you can have a seizure, you can drop dead. And it's, it's a really fine balancing act. And it, you really need to keep this, this actin and remember we've purposely dehydrated so we've played with this balancing act all week and now we need to reintroduce fluid so the type of fluid you're putting in is really important so as soon as bulk steps off that scale i've got all these drinks weighed out measured i have a, a drinking protocol that's specific for him to make sure that he's putting that fluid in he's putting one the amount of fluid back in that he needs to two He's got the right amount of sodium and glucose and fluid all mixed together. So he's restoring that saltiness. And three, he's putting it in at the right rate. So he's not just sculling it all at once. He's drinking it at the right amount of time so that his kidneys can filter it and put it in the right parts of his body. And what about nutrition? Is that, is that just 
because you might think, oh, he must be starving. He might just want to go smash a lot of food and get it in, but he also has to fight. He also has to, to train well leading up and, and, and feel good, sleep good. Is his food similar? Is it slightly higher than the 2200 that you had him on? Yeah, it'll be, it'll be much higher. I guess, um, I guess firstly, you'll very rarely find a fighter who's at weigh-ins that is craving food. And if anyone has been excessively dehydrated, you'll realize that parts of your brain that think about food shut off completely because the immediate risk to your life is getting that fluid back in. So that's what your brain focuses on. And at least for the first two hours or so, that's all we're focusing on is getting that fluid back in. Because again, we need his gut to be rehydrated so that he can effectively digest and absorb the food that we're going to put in because we're going to put in a lot of food. Remember, I spoke about this process of taking out all these, all these things out of his body. So we've depleted his body. When we take out that glycogen, the stored carbohydrate for fight sports, it's a very high intensity sport. I'm sure even if you don't watch UFC, you can imagine wrestling someone, jumping on top of them, punching them, kicking them, choking them, all that is pretty high intense sport. So it's like, that sport is fueled by carbohydrates and I just took all the carbohydrates out of this guy's body. So we need to restore that. But then the next challenge is we've only got 36 hours. So firstly, I need to rehydrate him and then I need to get those carbohydrates back in. And so if your rule of thumb is that we're going to be giving him anywhere between five and 10 grams per kilo of body weight. So if the Volk who weighed in at say 70 kilos, he's going to get five times that 350 to 10 times that 700 grams. And to put that just in perspective, how much carbs it like a foot long subway is about 80 to 90 grams of carbs. So we're potentially putting 10 plus subways in him just that day after that he weighed in. So the Friday, we want to get eight to 10 foot long subs in him. And then on the Saturday, we probably want to go on the lower end of that. And we're looking at getting, you know, half that five, foot long subways worth of carbohydrates in him. So it's a lot of food that we're taking on, but we're doing that to ensure that he's got all the stores and he's got all the energy. So when he goes to compete, he's got everything he needs to compete at his best. Uh, you mentioned that just drinking water is, is, is not good enough. Um, and that's why I moved on to train aid because I, I felt a lot better. Can you talk about what formula you've created to to put into train aid because you've already mentioned glucose, sodium, potassium, and that balance. Have you got that perfect balance in each, in each tub, or is there a different sort of, uh, way that you went about it? Yeah. So, so I'd love to take full credit for formulating train aid, but I, I won't because I did early on, but I will now I'll give credit where credit's due. So a very, um, good friend of mine and close colleague called Dr. Lewis James. He is an old school um, MMA lover, but he's also one of the most renowned sports nutrition researchers in the world. He's from Loughborough University. He's probably the world leading expert when it comes to hydration and athletes and sports. And me and Lewis connected many years ago through our mutual love of MMA. Back in the day, if you looked at Lewis now, he looks like he's an academic and professor, but back in the day, he was a bit of a nutter and he was in the MMA and used to go to these underground fight things. So he's like, yeah, undercover nerd that could really beat you up. And um, he, when he started his PhD, MMA is not that big now. And it was 
minuscule back then and that was his interest and he was working with the likes of michael bisbing dan hardy all these big names in england where he's from but he couldn't get any research funding to do the research so he had to go into endurance sports and marathon is obviously a massive sport all all the way around the world and he spent a lot of his academic career in that field and he worked with guys like gabrielle Celesi, which is a dubai world record holder you know guys like uh, Elliot Kipchoge, everyone will know breaking two from um, Rant, fastest man in the world, Rant broke the two hour marathon, which we thought wasn't humanly possible. Lewis worked with all of those guys and he did the hydration plan for them. When me and Lewis connected, we also had this mutual hate for making up these rehydration drinks for our fighters because I used to make them in a hotel room with my measuring cups, my kitchen scales, and it was like a hotel chemistry kit. And I'd mix all the salt, glucose and water and weigh it all out. And I remember him saying, I know exactly what you're going through. I used to do it. And he goes, funny enough, I spent years working on this research and researching things with these marathon runners that would apply so well for this post weigh-in fighting. He goes, imagine if you had the, the powder and you could just scoop it and it did exactly what you're doing, mixing it all up. And I went, yeah, that's amazing. But like, how would you do? And he goes, well, funny enough, I've got this sitting in my desk and no one's <laughs> going to use it. He's like, the university is not interested. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you. And I'm like, wow, well, like, let's see if we can actually do this. So me and my now business partner spoke and said, how's this actually going to work? We took the formula from Lewis, which is a formula, like you said, of electrolytes, glucose in a particular ratio of water that we believe and Lewis's research definitely supported gets fluid from the body into the blood remember we lost all that fluid from the blood when we were sweating and then to our cells in the most rapid fastest way possible at least at the time the fastest compared to anything else that was out there and that was the formula that we put into train aid and the reason why so many people say oh, i feel so much better instantly is because when you're drinking that plain water like i said your kidneys had probably just peeing most of it out but with a formula like train aid your body's detecting okay we've got this right mixture of salt and glucose and water, I'm going to keep that in. And you actually put mm. that in your cells and you're rehydrating your cells. And that's why you feel so good because the fluid's actually getting to where you need it to go. And that's why so many people will go, oh, I just drank two cups of it and I feel amazing. It's because your body's holding it and putting all that fluid back in your body where it needs to go. Yeah, your, your drink makes me feel so much better and now it's uh, i sound like i'm just i don't know kissing your ass and uh <laughs> just saying oh it's so good but it, it it really has changed the way i feel especially so the way our structure works and probably most jujitsu gyms we do a warm-up and then we do techniques and then for the last 30 minutes you're rolling but but before you're rolling you know there's a bit of specific training and usually when i get to the rolls when i was just drinking water i would feel a little bit just a bit flat because also the way that I structure, I guess to give you some context, I lift weights for an hour before I do jujitsu, just to just to really cram it in there because I'm not a full-time <laughs> combat athlete. Um, I just do it for fun, but that just makes it more efficient for me because the gym and my weights gym and then the jujitsu gym is super close together. So it's just bang, bang. And I was probably already going in slightly dehydrated as well. So it just made a massive difference. But one thing that I've been seeing a lot lately um, and obviously you don't need to bag anyone, but there's been a lot of hydration drinks that have, I guess, not actually been doing what they've needed to do, which is to hydrate other people because they've been, I don't know, putting different emphasis on different things like, uh, no sugar 
or um, I don't know, other things. Where have other hydration drinks, and once again, you don't have to name them if you don't want to, but where have they gone wrong? Yeah, I, I guess before I answer that, it is interesting, right? Like when I graduated university and I got my master's and did this and whatever, even up until a few years ago before I started training, I never wanted to get into supplements. That was not on my agenda. The reason we made this is because it was a need for an athlete. And if you want to do something right, do it yourself type thing. That was our thinking behind it. And going into the world of supplements was extremely insightful. It was like, it was very confronting, I guess, because here I am, this guy that's got two degrees. I, I've dedicated my life to understanding the science of nutrition. I'm working with the world leading hydration expert for athletes, and we're going into this. And then we've got all this knowledge and all this theory makes sense to us and the amount of time and effort we're putting into this drink. And then once I got into the world of supplements, you would kind of think that every company would have it, maybe not to the level that we were at, but you know, at least someone close. some type of scientific approach to this, where that's not the case at all. 99% of supplement companies, if it surprises people, are made by marketing companies that have zero background in science, zero. And that's the reason why, you know, I used to kind of shy away from this when people said, hey, when I drink train aid, I feel so good. And I don't feel so good when I drink this hydration drink or this hydration drink. And I always say, well, yeah, it's because we're not marketing people. We're not marketing people. Like we're scientists. Like we have hundreds of thousands of dollars of student debt that we're trying to pay off with this thing. But these guys have hundreds of thousands of dollars of marketing budget with ingredients that don't really make sense. You, you've got the wrong ratio of ingredients and then you're taking out some key ingredients that are so important for hydration. Like you said, like sugar, like a no sugar hydration drink makes no sense to me, <laughs> but that's coming from my scientific background. And so going into the world of supplements was very eye-opening and confronting and going, oh my God, like this is a real problem. And I guess that was a lot of the motivation to keep train aid going. When I originally set this up with um, Lewis and, and, and we got this formula, I just wanted to keep it for my top level athletes. I wanted to keep it for my Izzy Adesanya's, Alex Volkanovsky's, Leon Edwards, because at the end of the day, I'm a competitive guy and I wanted to win world titles. And if I could do things and keep something to myself that would help my guys win world titles, I wanted to keep this, this formula that is miles above the rest and can rehydrate my guys way better than the next thing in line that all these other guys, I want to keep that to myself. But it wasn't until I really realized how bad the industry was where I was at this moral and ethical dilemma where it's like, okay, this is, this is kind of effed up that you're keeping this and not giving this out because more often than not, these guys are doing themselves harm, especially in the world that I'm in with weight cutting, when they're, they're rehydrating with these completely backwards drinks and they could literally put themselves in harm's way and put themselves in hospital if they do this wrong. And that's why we mm. decided to release it out, which I'm glad we did. And it, it's been a big driving force for what we're doing with the company is like, like I said, we're not marketing guys. Like we're just science nerds that are kind of putting this out there. And I think a lot of people are kind of coming around now and more than anything, just making them question what they're taking. And that's not just hydration. What's in this uh, creatine? What's in this protein? What's in this BCA thing? And questioning, does this actually work? And is this good for me? Which I think is a, a really cool benefit of doing that, that I didn't anticipate at the start. 
I've, I've fallen for so much marketing over the years, especially when I was younger coming into and less educated coming into, I'll say bodybuilding, but I've never done a bodybuilding show, but just training in general, I started off playing sports and then I started liking the training more than the sport. So I just stuck with the training mm. and I went through everything. I've, you know, I've, I've had BCAAs, all of that, and there's nothing wrong with them, but I guess just putting way too much emphasis on it due to the marketing. Like I was young and there were influences that I was like, I would like to look like this person. So I'd take whatever they were holding in their Instagram photo and their caption that said it made them feel better and their motivation was through the roof and all of that. I used to take protein and just hope that it would make me big. I used to have, have the, 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 the chunkiest <laughs> mass gainer shakes ever. I would like triple scoop it. It was so many cars. Like I couldn't even shake it. Cause the water wouldn't mix. Yeah. I just, I, and, and I think so many people have fallen for it and it's so good that you're backing things with actual science. And I think, I think it's actually a really good time to have something like train aid because I feel like there's a thirst for knowledge with podcasts, let's say like Huberman growing, even Joe Rogan, you know, some stuff that he shares, you know, may not be 100% accurate, more so backed by anecdote, but he, you know, he's bringing guests onto the show and there's other podcasts and, 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 you know, yourself, I like your Instagram page where you're sharing tips on how many carbs to have. If you're training for one hours, two hours or three hours or four hours, it's, it's making such a big difference. And I think that with all the education available with train aid out there, I think it's only going to continue to grow because yeah, it's made such a big difference in my lifting as well. I think um, but even though in jujitsu, I sweat a lot more, that's where I feel more of the benefits. I did have a, a sneaky question just on beta alanine. Cause I seen you posted about it on Instagram mm -hmm. and I have been using it for a while. It's quite hard to tell if I feel a difference, but I think I do. <laughs> and I'm like, is it, is it, is it the train aid? Is it the beta alanine? Is it creatine that I take? But it's definitely helped me with roles. Can you explain? what beta alanine does because so, i i just feel a difference but i'm not 1000 percent uh, on the research i've just read a study that was uh it was based on judo and how their performance was uh, increased and they performed better i'm not really sure how they did it but i just saw that study and i was like okay i'm gonna try beta alanine but i hadn't really done any more research than that yeah i think well what you're feeling is kind of right even if you think it works and it's a placebo, that's where a lot of these, you know, marketing companies get away. If you market it well enough and someone thinks it, because your mind's a powerful thing. If you've trained for a while, you'll realize it, especially in like jujitsu or judo, like your mind's a powerful thing. But at the end of the day, your supplements are the sprinkles on top of the cake. Like if you're eating a good diet, you're training hard, they're going to get you 98% of the way there. All these supplements. Yeah just add a couple sprinkles, but they, some supplements add more sprinkles than other. And beta alanine yeah. is a very interesting one because it helps buffer our endurance. And what, what I mean by that is that when we get fatigued, what happens? And everyone will say, oh, we build up lactic acid. And it's, a, it's the lactic acid that makes our body feel fatigued and makes our muscles burn. We all know that horrible feeling of having lactic acid. It's actually not the lactic acid itself. There's a little hydrogen which is a little molecule that's attached a little atom that's attached to it and hydrogen is very acidic by nature and what happens when our body exercises and builds up lactic acid lactic acid actually has one of these acidic hydrogens attached to it and they break apart 
So although lactic acid is partly to blame because it's carrying this hydrogen into the, into the muscle, it's the actual hydrogen attached to the muscle that makes it breaking off to the lactic acid that makes the muscle feel really acidic and gross and sore and everything. Beta alanine is cool because it breaks down into this thing called carnosine. And what carnosine does in the body is it sweeps up and collects those little acidic hydrogens. So if you can take more beta alanine and you can have more in your muscle, when you're creating these little hydrogens, you can clean more up and have a less acidic muscle, which means you have that less burning feel when you're doing that type of activity. With all these supplements, the, the thing to note about it is one, you need to assess, maybe you're getting it naturally in your diet and you probably don't need it and super physiological doses, which means more than what the body would naturally get in food might not make a difference. Sometimes they do, sometimes it doesn't. Things like creatine and beta alanine seems to be the case if you're a bit deficient in your body, like say a vegetarian or vegan or plant-based athlete would be, if you put these things back up to physiological dose, there seems to be a positive benefit for it. It's, it's more so the fact when we do super physiological dosing, do you get an even bigger benefit? And that's where it gets a bit murky. But if you're one of these people that say, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm not, I'm pretty good with my diet, but I'm nowhere near 110%. But you know what, maybe, maybe something like this could just tip you over to the upper limits of what you need, and you'll get a performance benefit from it. If you're if you're all over it, then you probably don't need it. And that's why we call it supplement, to supplement a diet, right? Mm. So beta alanine is a good one. We recommend it because other than the, it making you get tingly and feeling like you got ants running over your face and whatever, other than that, there's not a lot of negative side effects. So even if you're good and, and we're not quite sure if you have enough in your body, even if we overdo it a bit, there's no real negative. So I think, okay, well, if you might get a positive out of it, let's let's go for it because all you're going to do is really have to deal with ants in your pants, and you can get over that and just train. Yeah, I've I I overcame that. I don't get it anymore. I'm unsure if you build tolerance, but I did split it into two doses, uh, which yeah. is what I learned. So two two doses of three grams. It was just a bit annoying to remember, but once I kind of got used to it, and then I just had a bigger dose. I kind of have a tolerance to it, so I'm not sure if that if that works like that. And maybe you do know, but I've I feel better now just taking that one hit. Do you do you get tolerance or is that just a personal thing that I've experienced? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You definitely get tolerance. The you think of like the mechanism of what makes we call it paresthesia is is the beta alanine breaking down into the carnosine going into the blood. So as long as you're going to be putting that in there, that's going to be happening, you're going to get that effect. So by splitting that, you're going to get half of the effect, I guess, than what mm. you would if you had the full dose. Do you get a tolerance to it? It's always going to happen. Do you get better at handling that? The same way as when you got arm barred the first time, it really hurt. But then mentally, once you figured out like what that feels like, you probably had a better pain threshold tolerance for getting arm barred, even though we get arm barred all the time. So it's, yeah. it's similar to that in that you probably get more accustomed and used to the the feeling of it. Yeah. Okay. I have one last question, and then um, and then I'll let you go. It's um, it's another question that I found on your Instagram, and this is something that. I've dealt with with clients personally, but it's always nice to hear so, um, someone else's opinion and how they approach it with early morning eating before training. So I'm not a huge fan of my clients training fasted. It does obviously depend on the person, but I believe that the research is kind of like you may be able to build the same amounts of muscle, but in terms of strength performance, you're just not going to be there. Um, 
And you had some recommendations on your Instagram page around timing, you know, starting an hour before, and then you can kind of work up to eating a little bit closer to training and a little bit more. Um, yeah, can you just shed some light on, well, firstly, if you believe that it is important, and if not, that's cool. Um, and if so, what's some steps that people can take? Because that because some people just struggle to eat. They're like, look, I'm just not hungry, or I can't get up. I need to train at 5 a.m. I'm not getting up at 3.30 or 4 just to eat. So what advice do you have for people like that? Yeah, I'll, I'll break it up into few ways i won't answer it in the order you said but the easiest way to answer this is yeah firstly you your stomach is like a muscle and um there's this concept of called training your gut and it's absolutely a thing we do this with um endurance athletes that have to exercise for five six seven thirty forty five hours straight where you have to be taking on fuel and it's called training your gut and everyone can train their gut. The thing is that if you're going to the gym for 30 minutes, 60 minutes, there's probably not a lot of need for you to do it. So you just don't practice it. So the fact that people wake up and say, hey, I just can't eat beforehand. It's to me, I go, yeah, but when you were a white belt in the gym, you didn't know how to hip escape. You didn't know how to shrimp. When you first went into a weights room, you didn't know how to do a bench press. When you first you know, went on a football field, you didn't know how to cook, uh, kick a football. These are things that you just learn to do over time and training your gut is exactly the same. Your stomach is, is a muscle that you can train. So if you say to me, I can't eat in the morning, I usually say it's because you've put no effort into doing it. Everyone can do it. Now, to be able to do it, I guess if people are listening to this and going, okay, well, what do I eat? You want to make the process as easy as possible. For most people, what's going to be beneficial for your activity if it's a little bit higher intensity or if you're trying to build muscle getting in carbohydrates because those carbohydrates are likely going to be the predominant fuel source or whatever activity you're doing will probably benefit by sparing you, you sparing using the stored carbohydrates that you have. So putting in carbohydrates is usually a good idea. And people go, okay, well, what types? You want to get types that are very easily digestible. So simple carbohydrates, or if you grew up at the same time I did, high GI, Low GI were really big and they were all on the cereal boxes and everything else. So high GI foods, which mean they break down really fast and they get into our bloodstream really quick. So these are things like cereals, white breads, things that lack fiber, lack other things that are going to slow down the breakdown of that, you know, a, a really ripe banana, some dried fruit and a cup of orange juice, things like that, that are going to one break down really fast. And then the second thing you need to consider is the volume of it. So you don't want to be smashing like a subway foot long right before you go it's going to one take a long time to break down but just a lot of volume of food but you can very easily have a gatorade and a chop chip muffin that'll break down really fast and it's not that much volume going in your gut and it gives you all those good carbohydrates the very last thing i say to people is do you need to do it and that's a question of what your goals are so if you're goal is to not be a serious athlete and you don't really care about your performance then by all means go go faster i don't really care like if you're just going there maybe it's good for your mental health and you just Check want to box. move around yeah and you want to chat or whatever or you don't have body composition goals you don't have performance-based goals and then, then whatever like you don't really need to take it that serious just go to the gym and train and have fun and drink your black coffee However, if you're like most people who train and most people we probably deal with, like 
if you're serious about what you're doing, you need to eat. And it's not necessarily for the training session, although there is benefit to eating for the training session, one, because you'll have immediate energy to do the training session, but two, you're training to get a certain adaptation. You go and do a specific weight session or a specific cardio session or a specific conditioning session to get some response out of your body to either make you fitter, faster, or stronger. By having certain foods and having those carbohydrates on beforehand, you help that process afterwards. You help the process afterwards because you break down those nutrients, physically build the systems that make you fitter, faster, and stronger. The other thing which I believe is the most important one, which applies to you if you're either a serious athlete or you're very performance focused, is that it helps your recovery. And if anyone's ever been in a serious training block where you're training two to three times a day, most days of the week with a rest day in between at the end of a brutal training block, you realize that this is a game of, can I rock up to this session in the best shape possible to do the workload, to do the work rate required to get whatever it is I need to get out of the session, whether it's a speed session, whether it's a strength session, whether it's a conditioning session, whatever. And one of the easiest ways to put yourself in the best position to do that is to eat properly around training before, during, and after. So that's the process I go through with people. I go, hey, if you just don't care, if this isn't important to you, have a black coffee. I don't, I don't give, it doesn't affect me. Just go do it. Hey, but if you're coming on my roster as an athlete and you've got my name attached to it, I don't like losing. I'm, I don't like losing. I don't want you to lose. I want you to be good. You're eating. And if you say to me, oh, I, I can't really get it. It's like, okay, we need to work on that there because it's not an option. Like this is not an option. We just need to work the same as when your coach says, give me 20 burpees or 50 burpees. And you go, I can't do it. Your coach will say, shut the F up and do the burpees. You'll get better at it. I will tell you, shut the F up and eat the food. You will get better at it. And it's just a, really a question. Are you that serious about it or are you not? And most people, if you're serious about it, you should be eating before you train. On that training your gut thing, I definitely experienced that and I didn't know what it was, but it makes sense now. So when I was a face-to-face -face personal trainer in Sydney, I worked at Fitness First Market Street right in the heart of the city. And as you get busier and busier, you you get really good at cramming in your own training sessions in gaps and things like that. But then you also get really good at, well, I did smashing food really quickly and then having to train because I would have an hour to train, but then I'd just done, let's say four or five clients back to back, haven't eaten in four or five hours. It's not the best way to live life, but as a personal trainer, you're just kind of getting things done. When I first moved to Sydney, I just wanted to build my client base and get really good at personal training. So I used to sometimes smash two burritos from Guzman Gomez and then just go straight out and train. And even if I had heavy squats, heavy deads, my stomach got to the point where I could handle it yeah. and I would just train completely fine. Look, it probably wasn't the most optimal macro split meal frequency, blah, 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 blah. But I, let's say trained my gut to really push through in that time. And I actually felt really good while I was training and, and, and doing that, but I did have to work up to it. Yeah. I mean, the craziest example you'll see of this, of any athletes on earth are ultra endurance athletes who are going for 10 to 20 to 30 to 40, sometimes 50, 60 plus hours. So obviously if you're, and they're, and they're going like, and they're going hard, they're running up mountains, they're constantly doing this. They obviously have to put fuel in and you know, there's, we know athletes that, and we've worked with athletes where they can put a burrito in every hour up to 30 hours, you know, because they've just trained their gut and they're burning through that fuel. 
and they can just do that and it's incredible but the, the difference with that sport is is that at the end of the day you could probably get through your your training it wouldn't be ideal and you wouldn't be optimizing your body but you could get through like a you and i could get through a jiu-jitsu class or we could go lift weights and we'd get through it we just mentally tough it out with that sport mm. you can't because you're pushing your body to the absolute physiological limits if you don't have the fuel you're done you're out good night irene so you have to train your gut to do it and these guys just show us how crazy the limitation is because it's so 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 much further than what you are and that's why i look at those guys and go these guys are eating burritos every hour for 30 hours and susie over here is whinging about drinking a cup of orange juice before she goes over to a f45 class like gulp it down susie and get on with it so good so good well thanks for jumping on the podcast man i really appreciate your time and like i said i really appreciate uh, the science that you put into your work and your products and you know as a consumer or a, a a fan of of using your stuff i appreciate you for what you do and also jumping on the podcast as well i think this is going to be super valuable to people into lifting even my clients that are you know having me as a coach and i would say no some of the things that we talk about but definitely not diving into the hydration and kind of weight kind of thing which is very specific to what you do so thanks for jumping on man where can people find you online and do you want to leave them with anything or where do you want to send them yeah so at the underscore fight dietitian on instagram is probably where we're most active we've got a facebook the fight dietitian as well we do have tiktok jordan sullivan dietitian i don't tend to get on there too much it freaks me out that world um me too on twitter or x or whatever you want to call it don't really get <laughs> on there too much um youtube we do have a youtube account as well fight dietitian we put out a lot of free info um yeah instagram is probably your best bet we, we post twice daily and we've done it for years and like like uh brock said we like breaking down that science right like we get we're, we're so privileged we get to work with some of the best athletes in the world but to be honest kind of helping the everyday person is a really really big goal of ours because we see so many people struggle sifting through all this stuff and it's so it is confusing it's so confusing trying to find good information and we just hope that that page is a place people can go to to get really, really good, simple, broken down, useful information. Yeah, man, it's a, uh, yeah, I can uh, second that your Instagram's super, super helpful. And yeah, and everything you do, like I said, so thanks for jumping on, man. I appreciate your time. And